It's the Chief Planners Podcast for October 2021. Adam with uh, Simcoe County Greenbelt Coalition, and I am joined by my two colleagues, Margaret and Kelly. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Adam. Hi, Kelly. And uh, we're trying out a new platform for recording, and hopefully it's going to be amazing and all of our audio is going to be crystal clear. But in the event anything sort of goes sideways, bear with us. We'll we'll, uh, do our best to uh, clean it up post-production editing. Anyways, the topic for today that we're super excited to talk about is greenwashing. What is it? Uh, What are some examples locally? And uh, maybe some steps that we can take to address it. Mm -hmm. So I've got the, you just stop in there just with the, mm mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. I just, I just wanted you to know that I fully support you vocally. (laughs) Yes. mm -hmm. That's exactly what we're talking about. I would, I would add to the greenwashing part, um, why it's so dangerous, uh, for climate action, like how it actually erodes climate action. It would also be, uh, something I think we could talk about too. Are you making notes? We're going to check in with that later. Make sure we cover it. (laughs) You know, I'm the note taker. So I thought I, I, uh, I went and did a little bit of poking around Margaret. Stop it. Sorry, throwing stuff around. Um, so the the sort of dry uh, definition of greenwashing here it is: greenwashing is a form of marketing spin in which green PR, public public relations, uh, and green marketing are deceptively used to persuade the public that an organization's products, aims, and policies are environmentally friendly. Um, so. Spent a little bit of time finding some examples. So how about if I just play a few of those examples, people can get a sense of some of this stuff. Um, I think if, uh, if you haven't thought that you've heard of greenwashing before, I think you'll realize pretty quickly that you have. So our commitment to delivering energy sustainably with respect for the environment and the communities where our employees live and work is what sets us apart interesting any thoughts i've got a few (laughs) well uh who would like to go first i'm sure we all have lots to say well i'll tell you how i how how i found this uh it wasn't by searching for tc energy it was by searching for trans canada right so they don't have anything to hide right they're not they're not trying to rebrand themselves or or disassociate themselves from some problematic uh issues that have happened uh, under their former name, Trans Canada. Um, but I mean, it's it's marketing, right? That's it's that's that's what it is. It's an advertisement for a company that's trying to sell you something or trying to sell us something, and they're making themselves off to be um, good, right? They're they're just presenting their best face, I guess. Is is what's going on there? The there there's some elements of that that I would say are pretty deceptive. And I think that that's uh, there are pretty good examples of how greenwashing uh, is practiced. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
And, and frankly, as a corporation, you wouldn't expect them really to behave any other way, to be frank. You're not going to expect them to say, oh, we you know, tread on indigenous rights and we pollute rivers and lakes without any accountability and we put in lobbyists to make sure we get what we want. I mean, that's kind of the expectation, I would say, of a corporation. But um, the thing that stood out for me, and not that it's right, but I mean, we we shouldn't be surprised by it, I guess is what we're saying, what I'm trying to say. Um, but one of the things that stood out for me was the phrase, respect the environment, which gets thrown around a lot. We respect the environment. And I'm like, what actually What actually does that mean? What do people think it means? And then what does it actually look like it means? Because when I say that I respect someone, generally means I don't like them too much. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm polite enough and I recognize that they have talents or skills or whatever that I can respect them, right? I don't know. That maybe I've just got this weird, weird example of what respect is. But anyways, so when, the, when you see corporations or other entities throw around that respect the environment. To me, that's just a red flag because it's just gobbledygook that actually doesn't have any have any meaning to it at all, especially when you see how it looks on the ground. What do you think, Kelly? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's exactly one of the hallmarks of greenwashing that we see, regardless of whether that's um, in a product like corporate greenwashing or policies, whatever it is, is that vagueness, right? Terms like eco-friendly or respect the environment or environmental or just the word green or just the color green in some cases, right? It's completely vague. It doesn't actually hold up to anything. There's no transparency on what the actual, you know, their policies are, whether that's a corporation or government or organization we're talking about. Um, So that's, I mean, that's just one of the hallmarks of greenwashing. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think you you brought up a good point there. When I was in uh, high school, I had to read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And my uh, high school teacher, we had like honestly three or four classes about the word quality because it happens to be one of those English words that means something that's very subjective, but there's absolutely no way to measure it objectively. And I think it's that same thing for respect the environment or like sustainable like what actually they they use those words that are, to your point Kelly that are vague enough that don't have common under, commonly understood metrics that go with it right like it's just like oh it's quality it's sustainable okay what what actually do you mean by that and where are the metrics to show that it actually is they never get to that part Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, some corporations even go further than just vague language or vague and misleading marketing and will even come up with kind of their own numbers their internal studies or even um, kind of uh, stickers that look like certification stickers that they can come up with just on their own that aren't even a third party, you know, like the actual ones like B Corp and things like that. Companies can make up their own just so it looks like there's a certification on it. So some of them go go well even further than that to kind of uh mislead consumers and citizens there's the the flex fuel on uh pickup trucks i think that's ford maybe um the uh eco boost you know uh also is another car thing which it just kind of cuts the power out so (laughs) you're left with a a car that can't uh, get up a hill very easily um different things like that. But getting back to the respect thing, like I, one of the things that I love to do when I'm trying to understand something is go to the etymology of the word, like the root of the word, where it came from and what it really means. And so respect actually is from Latin respectus, uh, 
so it means literally the act of looking back at one. So that could be, you know, <laughs> waving at something in the rearview mirror, like, see ya, fucker. Uh, <laughs> and, Adam uh, has his finger maybe, up, middle finger up, just so you know, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually kind of giving it to myself because I'm also looking at myself on the screen. <laughs> That's a metaphor for lots of things. Um, but uh, yeah, I know. I mean, we, we can be sort of uh, glib about it, but um yeah, you know, the the, the respect, um, it has different meanings, obviously, depending on on uh, the person who's, who's hearing it. But I think broadly, it's one of those things that you want. Uh, it's a quality that you want in someone who's, you know, someone who's respectable, who's someone, and, I, and, and sort of trying to attach that to the etymology of the word, the actual meaning of the word is a little difficult because it seems like it's out of place. Like you're just... A respectable person is someone that you look back on. Uh, okay. Uh, that doesn't really make a lot of sense <laughs> for me. But uh, anyways, but, but it does I wanted to also ways. get into... Mm-hmm. Sorry, Adam, to interrupt you. It does in some ways because when we think about the glossiness of using the word respect, you're just actually... It's not an actionable thing in the etymology there. You show there's no action to it. It's not like you're like, oh, respect means I uphold someone's uh, autonomy or I support them or I ensure that I don't harm them, right? It's just like I look at them and I observe them and I don't actually do much else. (laughs) And I think that's probably pretty parallel to how when corporations or municipalities or governments use, we respect the environment. They're just going to put it in there. They're going to watch everything burn around them and pretend that they're respecting it, but really they're just observing the damage that they're creating and pretending it's something else. Right. Well, and how, and, and, and I bet if you, like, I don't have anything to base this off of, but I bet if you look at how uh, the notion of a respectable person has come to uh, be in our culture, there's probably a lot of class elements in it so that the respectable person for the majority of people was somebody who was kind of untouchable, somebody in a class above them that you could look at, but you couldn't quite approach. Uh, so it was always sort of something that's a little bit out of reach for most people, but nevertheless, something to aspire to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wanted to get into a little bit also. So we're, we're talking about marketing, um, and, you know, greenwashing is a form of marketing and as the, as the definition says, and modern marketing is something that's a little bit different from how it started out advertising advertisements used to be informing people about the the qualities of a product there's always an element of snake oil sales sales uh, you know in 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 products you'd get that sort of stuff but more or less uh typically initially it was about informing people of how a product would operate if they if they used it but in the early part of uh, the 20th century, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, actually a guy named Edward Bernays, uh, realized that you could use uh, psychology to manipulate people into buying more things. And, and the way that you do this is you you make people anxious. You make people feel like they don't have something or they don't have everything that they need. And then you give them the solution to that. So that's, that's kind of the birth of modern marketing um, where you are creating a need more or less for people. And 
one of my favorite books. It's a book called Less is More by a guy named Jason Hickles. He talks about this a little bit in it, but he terms this modern marketing as a kind of psychological warfare, right? So, uh, and then he goes on to say, just as the oil industry has turned to more aggressive ways of extracting reserves that are increasingly difficult to reach, so too advertisers are turning to more aggressive ways of getting at the last remaining milliseconds of our attention. They are fracking, as it were, for our minds. So we're exposed to thousands of ads every day. And with every year that ticks by, the ads become more insidious. And I think that, you know, we see this with 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 Facebook, the entire value of which is sort of based on exploiting people, uh, the data of people to sell them products. Similarly with Google and these sorts of things. And I think that we're... You know, uh, to to bring this back to uh, the environmental aspect of this, the greenwashing aspect of this, I think we're going to increasingly see that as companies recognize that their activities are problematic, their activities are contributing to this huge problem and this increasing problem of climate change that we have, as well as environmental degradation and other areas. But those companies, the success of those companies hinges on continuing a lot of those same activities so they're sort of stuck with a bit of a problem and so telling trying to change the narrative telling a little bit of a different story about the activities that they're engaged in is i mean i think that's what results in greenwashing and uh, yeah i wonder what you guys think about that yeah absolutely and i mean going back to kind of the same time that bernays was writing we can look at the the concept of the culture industry which is the commodification of various parts of culture and kind of that um creating kind of fractals of of everything that you know everybody needs individualized to that person creates you know that's why we see so many versions of the same product which obviously overproduction leads to overconsumption and then again we've seen kind of a doubling down on that you know since globalization in the 80s um, and the rise of neoliberalism um, to kind of and and as you said as as using data to only enhance marketing and, and sell even more we kind of see that it's very easy now for corporations to co-opt all kinds of shifts in, in culture, including counterculture or even anti-capitalist culture um, and environmentalism. That's why we're seeing so many green products now. Um, the consciousness is actually shifting. People are actually aware and caring. Um, but obviously, we know the changes that need to be made um, cannot coexist with current business models and cannot coexist with this current type of marketing um, or arguably marketing at all. Um, so just the co-optation of it and, and greenwashing is this really, I, f- I think, frankly, it's, it's either becoming or going to become a rather desperate attempt to um, not allow that status quo to change. Mm-hmm. And I would just add to that that, you know, as I said earlier, I don't really expect corporations to behave differently because their mandate isn't to actually make the world a better place. That I mean, anybody that thinks that is doesn't know actually legally why corporations <laughs> exist. Exactly. And so um, I had one of my mentors when I started early in my corporate career, she used to work for a pharmaceutical company. And she said she was high, high, high up in the marketing. And she's like, you know, basically my whole job was to tell people they needed a product today. They couldn't live without it that didn't exist yesterday. And 
she's like, if I did my job, then they were like, oh my gosh, I need to have that because it never existed before, but I couldn't imagine my life without it. Um, but I wanted to kind of bring it back away from, I mean, corporations are there for profit. They're there for shareholders. I mean, they're selling a product. But I think we forget that corporations, although they influence our governments, we forget that our governments are also using similar tactics of greenwashing. And yet they are actually the power brokers for how change can happen as far as policies and laws and, you know, really addressing some of these root causes. So um, while it's, while it's accurate and fair to vilify corporations, I also think that expecting them to be different is kind of insane. But we trust our governments to be acting on our best interest. And to, to what Adam said earlier about how, you know, corporations, uh, you know, doing things in order to get to their profits, and they measure things that are incompatible with our current uh, climate and can't keep their business model the same. Municipalities and governments do the same thing. They're focused heavily on GDP. Uh, which isn't necessarily a great, well, absolutely isn't a great indicator of the health of our communities, the health of our environment, the, the social cohesion, any of that sort of thing. So similar to corporations who have to, um, have to change and adapt because their practices aren't great. Oh, sorry, Adam, you have your hand raised, but I didn't know if you wanted me to finish my point. No, I, I do. And I'm laughing because this new platform that we're using, it's it, for me anyways, it's got my whole video bouncing up and down. I didn't realize yeah, it was going to be so persistent. <laughs> but, I, I, but I don't want you to entirely wrap up that point because I want to throw to throw to a little advertisement for ourselves, which is asking people to donate. But uh, but no, please finish your finish that, but don't entirely wrap it up because I think that's getting into a really really interesting area and really sort of the 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 root of the problem, if you will. Well, now you're you're anticipating that my memory is good enough to remember what what line of thought I was actually on in in that rant of mine. So uh, all I would say to, to finish it up is that we we expect different from governments. But they act and behave very similar to corporations, although we expect a, there's a high degree of public trust, or at least there used to be. Um, there's that similar greenwashing, which I know we're going to get into locally and and all of that. I think when we talk about the uh, threats to climate action, it's very easy to see how the fossil fuel industry is uh, impeding climate action or ob- obstructing climate action. And we forget to equally put our governments on the same metric of like, are you helping with climate action or is your greenwashing convincing us that you're doing everything you can and not actually doing what you're supposed to be doing? Anyways, that, that, that's my wrap up. Well, okay. And, and that is getting into some of the core, core areas I think that we are all hoping to address today. And so we're just going to throw it to a little plea for your support. Uh, and then we'll be back in, in just a short bit. Hi, I'm Ross, and I choose to support uh, the Simcoe County Greenbelt Coalition. These folks advocate passionately for the preservation of uh, so many of our natural features in the uh, Simcoe uh, uh, County area, the wetlands, the forests, the sources of water such as the Oro Moraine. 
And in my opinion, SCGC are experts on many of these issues and um, bring about a great deal of awareness to both the public and to all levels of politicians. And I just want them to keep up the good work and uh, keep fighting the good fight. Hello, my name is Michael Douglas. I live in Romare Township and I support Simcoe County Greenbelt Coalition because I genuinely care about the social, economic and environmental impacts that affect Romare Township, Simcoe County, Ontario and Canada as part of this finite planet we call home. Like many grassroots organizations, it can sometimes be difficult to find reliable funding, especially when you speak truth to power and when that power controls the purse strings. So we really do rely on funding from people like you. Even $5, $10, especially if that's every month, that really does add up. And if you're able, head on over to SimcoeCountyGreenbelt.ca where you can find a Support Us page and make your donation. Again, that was SimcoeCountyGreenbelt.ca. Thanks. All right. So, Margaret, you were mm. uh, getting us, moving us away a little bit from looking at solely sort of the corporate aspect of greenwashing, and you were starting to get into how um, similar dynamics play out politically. And I think it's really, I mean, I think look at where the action has been with with climate change, right? There's been, I think it's evident that there's been far too little done. So you need to ask the question of why, why is that? And, and, and I think that a really excellent example of that, and locally this has happened, are climate emergency declarations, where you'll get elected leaders declaring climate emergency declarations, making climate emergency declarations, and then very little happening with it. And I think like the question is, well, what, what the hell, what, what's an emergency? What do you expect to do in an emergency? You know, is it just something that you say, oh shit, that's an emergency. And then you, you proceed, you go on, you leave it, leave it alone. There's nothing, nothing that you have to do to follow up on that. I mean, that's a bit of a rhetorical question, but we just experienced a tornado in Barrie. I happen to live like pretty much right in the path of where it went. We were very lucky. We didn't get uh, any severe impacts from it, but I experienced the emergency response and, you know, there was a response. It was quick. There were, there were a lot of people that flooded the area. Uh, I would say there are some problems with how the response went, um, but all in all, it was a dramatic response in a relatively effective one for for the type of emergency that it was. Where do we see the equivalent of that with climate change and with environmental issues? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think when you think about an emergency, whether that was yours with a tornado or you know, someone's fallen and, and broken or your house is on fire or something like some, like if you really consider about emergencies you've had, it's an instant reprioritization. Like this used to be important. So I'm quite sure, you know, when people are thinking about their house burning down or a tornado or, you know, someone's like seriously ill, the last thing you're thinking about is like, 
oh, I wonder if I should like go paint my nails right now, or I should go, you know, just watch some more TV because the things that we just considered were habits and that they're okay, all of a sudden don't fit into that reprioritization list, right? And what I see uh, happening is with the climate emergency declarations or ones that want to put out a sustainable plan, we're going to sustainable plan here and this is how we're going to approach it. It's like they don't reprioritize, but they go after the low hanging fruit that makes it look like they've reprioritized to cover the fact that they're not reprioritizing. So, um, Mm You see the the Canada, you know, our greenhouse gas emissions, what the only G7 country where they've actually increased. And so very clearly we haven't reprioritized, but then we're like, oh, but we're going to uh, talk about this new policy that actually doesn't drill down to where the emissions are coming. And I know we'll, I'll leave space for Kelly because I'm sure she has some amazing thoughts with it as well, but it's this, this distract of low hanging fruit to make it seem like you're doing something. But then the science is very clear saying that is not actually what we're talking about. And the IPCC report was talking about how responsible urbanization and land use is to our greenhouse gas emissions and go around to any of the municipalities across Canada. I know in Europe, there's some examples. How many of them have reprioritized how they do land use planning to the point where they plan differently, they budget differently, they engage differently? No, they're still doing the same, but they're planting a couple of trees out backyard so that you can feel like, you know, it's a pollinator garden. Great. But we're going to destroy all this wetland in order to put some more sprawl up, right? So I'll throw it to you, Kelly, because I'm sure you have some additions. Yeah, no, 100% um, agree with all of that. And I mean, I think, you know, part of, you know, what you said, uh, they're coming up with climate plans, not a response, right? They're coming up with a long-term 2050 plan, which we know, you know, 2050 is kind of the new climate denial, right? Delay is denial at this point because of how um, urgent this is. Um, So I think the fact that these are long-term plans and they're just plans on how they're going to do things, right? They're not actually a response. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the metaphor of, yeah, our house is on fire has, you know, gone around a lot. But if you think of actually being in an emergency, that is, you're absolutely right. The priorities completely change around. And I think that's something that you know, people need to, I think, understand. And it is hard to, to comprehend if you can't see a fire or see a tornado, right? But it's, we have this cognitive dissonance. This is something we've talked about a lot. Um, there's this cognitive dissonance between the actual scale and scope of this emergency, especially in the global north, um, because we're the least and, you know, affected. Um, but people, I think, don't realize how much actually has to change. And that makes them very vulnerable to being to being able to accept very mediocre, inadequate plans rather than emergency responses. Um, and if you think about being in an emergency situation, you know, there's sacrifices that need to be made, right? You can't take everything out of that burning house. You know, a lot of the stuff that gets left is the stuff you have overconsumed. that all those products that you don't actually need, which... The metaphor actually fits very well for that. Um, but this <laughs> overconsuming 
lifestyle that we've been sold by decades of marketing, regardless of who you are, um, that's something that is going to have to be a thing of the past and rather quickly. But with emergencies, one thing we also see is people we see a suspension of norms, right? We see a suspension of norms, whether that's in how governments work, how um, policies and like like funding relief gets brought out, but also in people's behavior, right? We see this, you know, with the tornado, um, with the pandemic, obviously we have now lived through an emergency, um, more so at the beginning of the pandemic, but we also see the suspension of norms where people can actually act differently and actually take care of each other and show up and do things differently. So we need to I think of kind of the good, the good things that can come out of it as well. So now here's the problem we run into with uh, calling on politicians to make difficult decisions, which is what you need to do in an emergency. People won't vote for them. At least that's what they believe. I think that there's some, value to that belief. You make a difficult decision and we can see how tenuous even something like a carbon tax, a price on pollution with a full and in many cases, even more rebate to people. So at the end of the day, people actually receive more money, but the initial uh, cost is there. How tenuous it was for the liberals who introduced that um, as an election issue, you know, so, and, and, and I've got a line of thoughts on that, but I, I wonder what, what you think regarding that problem. So politicians sort of, to get elected, they've got to do things that people want, that people, that will make people happy. Mm. I think that's an example to me that the people that are in politics would rather stay in power to make moderate to minimal change their 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 level of influence and the longevity of their influence is more important to them than actually doing what the science says or doing what they know is is helpful so one of the things that bothers me about like consultations and this does get to that point is that um sometimes i do consultations on really weird things that people don't have the technical expertise about. So for example, they'll be like, oh, we're going to lay some wastewater pipes here. Uh, what type of, you know, where do you, what, what type of, of pumps do you think we should put in these different places? And where do you think the road should go? And they consult on things that actually the people don't have the technical expertise to be consulted about. And then the things to say, oh, how would you like, you know, to be able to walk in your neighborhood? How would you like to be able to look in your neighborhood? And they don't ask them about those things. And I think with climate, they're, I'm not saying they shouldn't consult with people, but objectively, there are very clear guidelines that science has provided for us that need to get done. We can consult with people about what that looks like in their community, but it's really not a fact finding. Like, what do you think climate action should look like in Simcoe County? Well, actually, why don't we just go to the science? What does the science say that we should be doing and, and engage people on um you know, how it impacts their daily life. I, I find that they want to make it give people decisions that they may not understand the full impact of it, but that's their, that's their job is to understand the full impact of it and make the choice for the greater good. So, 
Um, do I think that they should be consulting people on, should we take climate action? Should we plant 10,000 trees or 20,000 trees? How many trees do you think? No, that that's, that's not a consulting kind of thing. You make those decisions because we have the science and the expertise. And by you defaulting to say, well, if I don't, if I do this and people aren't going to vote for me, well, then why are you there? Why are you really there? Because if it's just to follow the status quo, you are no longer the leader that this world actually needs anymore. So if your personal power takes supremacy over doing what the science uh, tells us we should be doing, climate or otherwise, um, what the evidence shows us we should be doing, then I, I think you're not cut out for the job. Personally, mm-hmm. that's me being harsh. <laughs> Kelly? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think that also goes back to what we we're talking about. You know, what what does an emergency actually look like? Right. I think if this was being treated as an emergency, we might actually get more of that from our leaders. Right. If we had, you know, the media reporting this daily as an emergency, if people were actually talking about this as an emergency, then governments would be forced to do that and actually treat it as an emergency. We saw some leadership. We saw some people step up. Uh, at least temporarily, um, during the pandemic, during the early days of the pandemic. Um, and I think, yeah, if this was treated as an emergency, then we would get a little bit more of that. But I also think that, um, speaking for kind of the younger demographic here, young people absolutely want leaders who are going to make those tough decisions, right? We know there was a recent groundbreaking study that actually linked climate anxiety, which is a now documented phenomenon, um, to government inaction. There's a mental health crisis globally for young people that has been linked to government inaction. So obviously, they're not the voters that these uh, politicians are kind of pandering to, um, but they're going to be. And some some of them are if we're looking at older youth. Um so I think we are going to see more pressure. Um, well, we have been seeing more pressure for um, or more demand, more um, desire for leaders to be making those big, tough, sweeping decisions that are in line with the science. Um, and um, going back to what you were saying, Margaret, about how, you know, they're kind of like debating this and debating that. How what should we do? What, that's not up for debate. Like we know what we have to do. Obviously implementation looks different in different places. That's context specific, but we see, yeah, that's going to be context specific. And that's a fallacy that we see on climate and many other issues, right? Is that kind of fallacy of like presenting it as a debate, right? Some of these things are not up for debate and it's rather a matter of how are we actually going to implement the things that we know we need to do, right? So putting it up for debate, we see that with, you know, even just news headlines, right? Of posing something as a question. It's for clickbait, obviously, again, going back to digital marketing, but um, just posing these things as a debate is not falling in line Mm -hmm. with this being an emergency, right? So, and we've seen some of that with the pandemic too, right? These things get presented, you know, show all the sides of the argument and all of that. It's like, no, some things aren't up for debate, right? The balanced Um, conversation. So we need to be focusing then (laughs) exactly on input and actual public participation um, for how to best implement it for that local context, right? Not necessarily what actually needs to be done. Because like you said, we, we know what the science has been telling us for forever and indigenous mm-hmm. people have been telling us that for even longer. So, yeah, you mentioned the, uh, the pandemic and that's, I think that's a really interesting example of a response to an emergency that differs quite dramatically from what we've seen with regard to climate change and environmental issues. I think there's 
uh, a good explanation for that. I was going to say reason, but explanation, uh, which is, you know, that it's, it's immediate and, and the impacts are, are, you know, they, they're here. And now um, that's increasingly the case with climate change, but for a long, long time, uh, climate change was a, you know, a far distant issue uh, with impacts that weren't going to be felt, you know, by us probably, um, or at least that's the way that people perceived it. And so, so the action wasn't necessary, as Margaret so well said. You know there, that that instant reprioritization wasn't required, um, mm-hmm. and I think that's still the case. Uh, you know, that's this, these are the twenty fifty targets and all this sort of stuff, and it's it's an easy way to forestall action and forestall uh, really leadership. So there's. I, I, I want to wrap up the, uh, the political thing and then maybe we can move on to some local examples. Uh, but my, my take on that is it links back into the marketing uh, aspect and, you know, people, how, how central to our culture anxiety is and the need for people to be anxious and the need for people to want always to want more. And our entire economy is based on that, right? And there's, there's, uh, well, in my opinion, this is a this is a classic example of greenwashing. But there's a whole bunch of uh, people out there who um, call for clean, clean, uh, green growth of our economy, and uh, basically, you know, asserting that our economy can continue to grow forever, and you know, just as long as we do some technological fixes here and there. Uh, the impact on the environment will be reduced, you know, but if you think, well, just, just to address that quickly, and then I'll move back to the the political aspect of it, but the economy, basically, if we continue to grow the economy uh, at present uh, or at projected rates, uh, it'll be, it'll more than double in size by the date of a lot of these climate plans by 2050, by mid-century, the current global economy would more than double in size. Right, so that's twice as much extraction of, of of natural resources and consumption that we're presently doing. You know, to claim that that can be done in an environmentally friendly way, that not only minimizes the impact that that growth has, but actually reduces it to the levels required to address the the climate change crisis, is absurd. But the foundation of that growth is that anxiety that I mentioned earlier. Right. That, uh, you know, needing people to want and needing people to buy the constant anxiety, the constant need to fight uh, is what drives growth. That anxiety and that unhappiness that is so pervasive in our culture, you know, people people address that understandably by buying things. There's a, there's a, uh, you know, there, there's a hit of dopamine that, that happens when you buy stuff and all this, you know, there, there's, there's physiological effects to this that make, we, that make us feel good. Um, so how do you change that? How do you actually make people feel better about themselves in their day-to-day lives? I think capitalism is, is, is a core problem here, which is basically this artificial scarcity that, that it enforces on people. And it basically forces people to work the vast majority of their lives in jobs that give them no happiness, that provide no meaning to them, uh, which, you know, they, they self-medicate for by consuming more, uh, and that same dynamic plays into voting because the politicians typically you look at any election campaign out there, it'll be more or less pocketbook or pocketbook oriented. It'll be about sort of promising 
good, happy, nice things to people that we can give you more of this. We can give you more of that. But the thing with an emergency is you're making difficult choices. And that's what we're confronted with. We, we need people to recognize that this is not going to be easy. And we need people to take that first step and agree that, look, I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm not going to buy the biggest truck on the fucking mark on, on, on the lot today. You know, I'm going to buy a small truck or I'm going to advocate for a complete community, a walkable community, or I'm mm-hmm. going to take my bike to work, all these different sorts of things. And in the long run, those are better for you, but you're not going to get that little dopamine hit. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, so I think too, that's, with- that's kind of where I go. I think we need to be a more, uh, a society that is more supportive of each other. Yeah, for sure. And I think when you look back at that trans Canada YouTube video and it's not just them, it's everybody, um, all the, the corporations that market, they're not selling you, like you were saying earlier, but the, the marketing was very much about, you know, what the product can offer you. They're selling you a feeling of belonging, a feeling of identity. Mm -hmm. So all of the images there were like kids hugging their parents and happiness and like safety and acceptance. And so when, if you're not really sure if the emergency is an emergency and you're listening to the governments who say it's an emergency, but we can do that by planting some trees and by putting green roofs on and we're good. We're good. Mm-hmm. Like don't, don't get, don't get ahead of yourself. So if, if you're listening to those governments who don't know really how to do it differently and want you to believe that they're taking action, then you go, well, if I have to give that up, what, well, maybe, maybe I'm not going to have that status anymore. Maybe that, that doesn't make me fit in with anyone anymore because it, you know, capitalism's biggest trick was telling each of us that we're not really accepted as we are. And we have to change in a myriad of ways in order to be accepted, to find community, to find uh, companionship, whatever it happens to be. So yeah, you buy those products and you don't want to make the sacrifice because you've been fed since you were born. Not buying certain products are going to make you an outcast. Not living a certain life is going to make you an outcast and nobody is coming for you. Nobody's going to help you. You're on your own, right? And and just to be clear, we're not judging anybody for buying Nike sneakers, uh, myself <laughs> included here, or, or you know, um, driving the F-150 or whatever, although maybe a little bit, uh, and, and maybe a little bit with the Nike sneakers too. Uh, but it's systemic. This is the thing, right? And, 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 and I, we, we've, I think gone on about this before, but it's not an individual choice problem. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a di- distinction between downstream and upstream solutions. And I think we need to focus on the upstream solutions, uh, solutions such as basic guaranteed income, which levels the playing field and makes people know that they're not going to have to rely on food banks if they don't accept that minimum wage job that puts their health at risk, right? For instance, mm-hmm. or, or, or other things. I'd love to do an episode on wage slavery and, and Noam Chomsky here at, at some point. Um, but so, yes, we all individually need to change, but that's not where, where the main change needs to happen. And we need to push together. We need to push for change at uh, upstream. So what about some local examples of this? Uh, I can think of a few. Uh, but let's start with you guys. What would you go for local examples of greenwashing? Which one? And don't steal my thunder. Yeah. Well, I don't know what your thunder is, so I might just steal it uh, inadvertently. So, do you want to do rock, paper, scissors, Kelly, about who's going to do their local example first? <laughs> you go ahead. Um, I think 
before before we get into the like the local example, at least what I'm going to provide um, is recognizing if it is systemic and if climate action is a really large uh, nebulous thing, then we need to figure out a way to make it realized here. So we can each feel empowered within our communities to know that we can do something about it here. So if we go back to what the science is saying, you know, sometimes the media makes it seem really complicated. Oh, climate science is really complicated. Oh, there's lots of charts and graphs and oh my gosh, and there's this and there's a degree of error. And like, honestly, it's, it's really, if I was to put it like a, a, you know, version for dummies, climate science for dummies, I would say that we can't afford to lose any more forests or wetlands. We, have to uh, watch where urbanization happens and how we have it. We have to change our energy systems and no longer invest in fossil fuel infrastructure or fossil fuel extraction. Those are the top three that I would say that if we change those systems, then that would give us hope. So when you look at what that looks like at a local level of like, okay, no more fossil fuel infrastructure, what does that look like? Well, it looks like us not building any more highways. (laughs) It looks like us not paving over everything. It means we shouldn't be taking down forests or farmland or wetlands to put houses or strip malls in. Uh, It looks like the building code changes so that there's more um, green uh, building standards, for example, and changing how communities are built, right? So that it's not just ticky tacky sprawl everywhere. So my local example, I guess I'll start because I did the highways is the Bradford bypass, um, which is a four to six lane highway that cuts through the Holland marsh, which is one of Ontario's most important wetlands. Uh, also the headwaters of Lake Simcoe, basically meaning headwaters, whatever you put into that water there flows directly into Lake Simcoe. We knew, we know two things are causing the lake to die. Um, the phosphorus and salt. And I don't mean to be uh, hyperbolic about the dye, but at the end of the day, the conservation authority who's in charge of Lake Simcoe says that it will be a dead lake within 50 to 60 years based on the amount of salt and phosphorus are going into it. And so what happens when you put a highway into headwaters is that it increases the phosphorus because of all of the sprawl that happens around it and the salt from the roads. And what we know about fossil fuel infrastructure like highways is not only does it increase mining and aggregate demands, it also takes out the function of those wetland areas. It ruins endangered species and it helps with the biodiversity crisis, but it also doesn't reduce traffic and it it drives up greenhouse gas emissions. So what we're willing to pay for that particular highway is almost a billion dollars to not fix traffic, to make the climate emergency worse, and to exacerbate whatever health problems Lake Simcoe has. So I think that um, when you hear MPP Mulroney or some of the local politicians talk about, we're going to be helping the environment by building a highway because we're going to stop traffic congestion. Not only is it greenwashing, it's just not founded in evidence at all or science even. Um, So they are selling a product uh, trying to plant trees. There was an announcement they're going to plant trees under the bridge. Great. That's not going to cut it. Those trees are going to take 15 to 20 years to even start absorbing any degree of carbon with, with that's, that's impactful. Meanwhile, you're increasing the greenhouse gas emissions massively. So all of those kind of things um, to me is one of, the, one of the most egregious local examples of how we aren't really ready to prioritize transit, 
walkable communities over the profiteering of developers and land speculators and all of the construction companies that make a real pretty profit off of building things that we know are going to make people less healthy and less safe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. That's my example. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to learn more about that, I mean, I think like uh, some people out there might be thinking, well, you know, increasing fossil fuel emissions or greenhouse gas emissions, uh, we're all changing to electric vehicles. So that's not going to be the case in this sort of thing. Well, that's not the case, uh, or, or that may be the case, but that actually doesn't address the problem. So you can find out more about that on our website and, uh, when you're there, just search up some stuff, uh, do a search for Bradford Bypass. There's a couple of articles there where we dig into things a little bit more. And Maybe the show notes. The reasons why. Yeah, and we'll include the links in the show notes. That's right. Kelly, how about you? Have you got uh, some thoughts on, on how this is happening locally? Yeah, so I think the thing that I would want to bring up is kind of going back to how we started this conversation talking about climate emergency declarations, right? And we know tons of, of cities and towns, tons of municipalities have been doing these and we haven't really been seeing much. We've been seeing, you know, a section in new official plans about climate change, or we've been seeing a couple of extra studies maybe. But I think any municipality um, in Simcoe County and across Ontario in Canada, that is has declared a climate emergency and is not acting accordingly can amount to a form of greenwashing and or not understanding the scale of this, which, you know, doesn't reflect well on them. Um, But if they're not willing to do what's actually needed, they shouldn't be declaring an emergency, but we know that they should be declaring an emergency. Um, So if they're not going to be creating short-term as well as long-term plans. Again, we're still seeing the 2050 deadline. We know the 2030 deadline is possibly more important. Um, so if they do not have you know, a short-term plan like within the decade to actually change the way their cities are running or their, their towns are running, which again includes transportation, obviously we know that's the biggest emitter in Ontario. So we know from a climate and from a health perspective, frankly, we have to move away from purely vehicle dependent uh, communities, you know, towards those complete, those 15 minute communities. If they're not willing to actually do that very quickly, right? We saw cities were able to change so much about how things are run during uh, the pandemic. We need to be saying, seeing the same thing with regards to, you know, train. Uh, becoming more multimodal when it comes to transportation, um, incentivizing alternative modes of of travel. We need to see denser housing, um, which, you know, again, goes back to all of these things that people have been told about what they should want, which, again, is that, you know, white picket fence, middle class um, suburbia, right? We know we cannot afford that environmentally, in terms of emissions, can't afford that financially, can't afford that socially with the mental health crises we're seeing and physical health crises we're seeing. So if they're just not willing, like we, they need to be, there's just no other way to say it, really. I'm just going to repeat myself, right? If they're going to declare a climate emergency, they need to be actually acting at the scale of an emergency. Otherwise, that has absolutely no meaning. And we're just going to continue to stretch this out and water it down. And it's going to be really disastrous. Um, And these cities, you know, are not going to be able to, you know, make it to the end of the century. Um, And again, 
a lot of people know this. It's those people that hold the more political and economic power that are preventing it, which is increasingly becoming a minority of people. You know, most people are on board for this or they're on board for change and they just need we need to talk about more about what that change actually looks like right like what margaret was saying you know we need to see what this actually looks like on the local level right um and i think that is something that um we need to be having we need to be seeing more uh locally regardless of of where you're living mm-hmm. totally agree for mine i i think um and and we're, we're gonna wrap it up here uh pretty quickly uh but mine is a little bit of a a tough nut to crack, I think, at least fitting it in this uh, frame. But mine would be a development called Deorbit, which is proposed for Innisfil. And um, it's presented as transit-oriented, dense uh, development, all sort of good things, right? Those are things that we talk about a lot that we want to deal with uh, climate change, to make more equitable communities. However, what's currently there is farmland. Uh, it's near Lake Simcoe, and the, the the proposal is for eventually 150,000 people. So there's a couple of questions that need to be asked here, one of which I think the most important is, well, is this the best place to put people? The, you know, so I would say no, that those people first and foremost need to be uh, accommodated in currently built up areas through intensification. And we know that that can happen. Now, this may or may not be a car dependent community. My suspicion is that it will be, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's relatively closely uh, clustered around uh, a proposed go train station. So you have transportation down to Toronto and you have transportation into Barrie, uh, you know, a handful of times a day kind of thing. But my suspicion is that won't cut it for most people. Most people, uh, like anybody else living in towns around Barrie, even if those towns have grocery stores and different amenities, they use cars to get to and from other other sort of small locations in Barrie, in, in Simcoe County and, and larger locations such as Barrie for a number of different reasons. They go to visit and, and these sorts of things. And I don't think the transit connectivity with this particular development is going to be high enough for that type of quick and, and efficient transportation to happen. But I think I think probably the best way of identifying this as a problematic development is the 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 way that it's pitched uh it's very future oriented so as we've been talking about you know when you start when you start hearing sort of grand visions of what something will look like in the future take that with a lot of salt you know so a lot of things are going to change so this has these 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 sort of almost ethereal uh artist renderings of what it'll look like a city on the hill kind of thing um, lots of greenery, lots of people walking and cycling, uh, but very futuristic. And so for me, that that is immediately a red flag because they're trying to sell you something. And it's not addressing present day needs as such. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that that is, that is a big indicator for me. Um, that said, I know that this is a little bit, we, we characterize it as green, greenwashed sprawl. I believe that's the case, uh, but it's it's a difficult case to make anyways. But um, I think we had one more issue that we wanted to talk about, which we we did a little field trip recently. Um, Margaret, you want to you want to 
cover that quickly? Yeah, sure. I just wanted to t- tag on, because I always do, to your thing, Adam, about making a case for the orbit. If we go back to the science of the IPCC report, does it mean we're increasing fossil fuel infrastructure? Yes, because most of those people that are living there are going to be driving cars. Does it take out arable land? Yes, a lot of farmland. Does it threaten existing water wetlands and forests and water sources? Absolutely, it does with Lake Simcoe. So I think if you look at the science of what climate action requires, then it it hits all of the things, please do not do this, right? It's not a responsible vision of urban growth, in my opinion. Anyways, Mm -hmm. what I wanted to mention was two things. One, to go back to Kelly, she was talking about local plans and how they grow. And everybody needs to kind of watch the local municipality because those municipalities are planning what growth looks like to 2051, which, as Kelly mentioned, coincides with their 2050 targets. So, um Adam will throw in kind of what we're calling this municipal comprehensive review, which is a formal process that's ongoing now. What our organization is looking for are uh, stringent adherence to climate science, uh, change in land use planning and, and how we grow and where we put direct growth, uh, whether we are increasing more pipelines, whether it be for water, wastewater, uh, or fossil fuel infrastructure, more highways and roads. And uh, I would encourage anybody that wants to take climate action and have it be meaningful, then get engaged with the local municipality. And um, there's information on uh, hopefully in the show notes that Adam can put in to, to talk about how to advocate for 15 minute communities. And then finally, um, speaking of greenwashing, we have the city of Aurelia who I wouldn't say wins the greenwashing award, but they're in the running um, because they come off very clearly as an environmentally friendly, sustainable community. And we are going to take all these things into into hand and make sure that we've got a good climate plan. And then um, as Adam's going to put in the show notes, there's a a video we did with Bob Bowles, who's a master naturalist in the region, um, did most of the evaluations of wetlands in our in our area and and well regarded. And the city of Aurelia clear cut about a year and a half ago uh, was it 100 acres, Adam? I think it was 100 acres of of wooded wetland um, right next to Highway 11 to build another highway. So again, it breaks all of the rules of what climate science is saying. <laughs> Don't destroy wetlands and forests. Don't build more fossil fuel and direct growth where it's responsible. And it doesn't meet any of those criteria. Um, So no matter what your municipality says on the, what I would encourage each of you that are listening, don't look at their climate vision and their climate plan as this is how good they're doing for climate. Don't look at whether they've passed a climate emergency. Look into their budget. See how much money they're putting into climate mitigation and climate adaptation. Look into where they're putting their houses and what types of houses they're building and where they're building them. Are they are they expanding onto farm fields and forests? And those are the types of things that will tell you the real deal on whether your city or community is taking climate seriously or not. Um, that that's the real indicator there. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, we're, uh, we're at an hour, so, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll bid you adieu and, uh, hope you see you next time. Mm-hmm.